Quick language warning here. Sometimes Alice and I, we have potty mouths and we're working on that. So this is probably best for grown-up listening only. This is Body Shock, a podcast by two newbie parents, me, Alice Fenton, and my co-host, Shannon O'Mara. We separate fact from fiction about what having kids does to your body and mind and what you can do about it. Hello and welcome to Body Shock. My name is Shannon O'Mara and I'm here with my co-host Alice Fenton. Alice, hi. Hello. So yeah, this is the very first episode of an eight-part podcast by two newbie parents, me and Shan, for kindling and babyology. And we're looking at what having kids does to your body and your mind. I mean, honestly, so much crazy crap happens in that first year after you have a baby. The whole pregnancy thing in itself is pretty wacky, but it continues long after the little human has made its way into the world. Mm. So the aim here is for new or expecting parents to get a better idea of the changes that take place in the body after childbirth and to get some tips on how to avoid or treat some of the, uh, the more shit ones. Of course, many of the topics mostly concern the parent who gave birth, but we'll also be covering areas that affect both parents, like libido, sleep, hormonal changes, and how to avoid back and shoulder injuries when you have a surprisingly heavy little munchkin in your arms or strapped to your chest for most of your day. This first episode is called WTF, which sums up the shock that Alice and I felt after we'd had our little ones. We're going to start quite broadly today. We're going to look at a number of different issues and then for future episodes, we'll go a bit more deeply into specific areas of the body and the mind. First up is Dr Annie Marshall, who's the owner of Roselle Total Health in Sydney. She's a mum of three and a GP specialising in maternal and postnatal care. So today we're going to try to shine a light on some of the stranger things people say they experience post-baby, basically by firing numerous questions at Annie, who's going to do her best to, <laughs> to answer them. Thanks for joining us today, Dr Marshall. Are you ready for the barrage? I think so. We'll see how we go. All right. Let's go. Let's go. Take it away, Shan. All right. Annie, thinning hair, increase in hair growth, going from curly to straight and even changing colour. WTF. Why? Hair has a growth and a, a resting phase, and basically the hormones of pregnancy that increase in estrogen just prolongs the growth phase of your hair. So the most common thing women will report is thicker hair, you don't tend to notice the reduced hair loss, but that's what's happening. You basically lose less hair when you're pregnant, which is why four months after the baby comes, you're molting in the shower. It's just catch up. So longer growth phase during pregnancy, and it all resets later. So these changes are usually temporary. Um, some, some people can report prolonged changes, but mainly it's just a hormonal change in the growth phase of the hair. And what about the curly straight thing? Is that- yeah, so I suppose hormones can affect the texture of your hair. Many people have a change in hair when they hit puberty. Like um, might have straight hair that goes a bit more frizzy. So hormones obviously have a role in the texture of hair and the shininess of your hair and generally the whole appearance. But most of, most of the changes are reversible. Okay. So don't freak out. No. Okay. All right, next, stretch marks. Stretch marks. So stretch marks happen when your body grows faster than your skin can keep up. So it can happen with rapid weight gain of any cause, but obviously in pregnancy around the belly, the breast, and sometimes around the hips, if you're growing 
at a fast rate, your skin just can't keep up and those elastic fibres just sort of separate. As far as the lotions and potions that promise to stop it, there's no evidence to support that. They may, they may have small studies that might look good, but no, no big studies have been able to say that you can actually prevent it by rubbing stuff on your belly. However, um, treatment options are available after the fact. Um, if you get them early, there are some things on the market that might help improve the appearance of the stretch marks. So the focus is on fading the mark rather than you can't reverse it. You can't repair the skin. You can't repair the skin. You can improve the the elastin and collagen of the skin that's there, including the damaged skin. So things like retinoids, vitamin A, things can be used after pregnancy, not during pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and they work for some people, but not everybody. And then there are um, other things that are, are being used by some dermatologists like laser and dermabrasion, which some people have reported an improved appearance of the stretch marks. And it all depends on how long they've been there, how severe they are. And the best thing is just to see your doctor as soon as possible after the baby and see how what options you've got. If you're worried. Okay, cool. And if you were thinking of having more than one kid, should you just wait till like all the stretching's done and then do something about it? It's a nice thought. If your focus is on fading the damage and if there is a, is there, if the earlier you get it, the better your chance to affect the pigmentation. So basically if you've got fair skin, you can get a dark purple stretch mark. And if you've got dark skin, you can get like a light stretch mark. And obviously the, the more even your skin colour can be, the less obvious it's going to be when you're in your bathers and things like that. So the focus is on actually try to minimising that differentiation. And so you should probably do that as soon as possible after you notice the stretch marks. But obviously some of the treatments aren't recommended during the actual pregnancy. Shannon had mum thumb. Mm. What is that? Why did she get it? Okay, so mum thumb is... Um, the medical term is decurvens tenosynovitis. And basically, you've got a a tendon, a ligament that goes along your thumb and basically um, it it gets inflamed when that ligament rubs up against the little canal that it goes through um, the connective tissue in your wrist. So she got it probably from repeatedly lifting her baby in a certain way. Um, It can happen outside of mums, like certain labourers or people that do repetitive movements that are similar to, say, picking up your baby under its arms. With your hands in that sort of robot position, so it's just a repetitive strain injury. Um, what could you have done to prevent it? If if you if you sort of know, for example, subsequent pregnancy, you know you had that and took ages to get better. Next time when you've got your new baby, you might try to mix up the way you hold your baby. So instead of picking your baby up the same way every time, you might scoop your baby up between the between the legs so that your palms are facing up, so that you're taking the pressure off that that movement. It's hard to demonstrate on radio, um, but the movement where you're where you're lifting your baby like you might if you picked them up under the arms, for example. Wobbly teeth, Annie. <laughs> wobbly teeth. Okay, so seriously, I can't believe people. Go, I mean, I didn't experience the wobbly teeth thing, but but uh, word we on crowd, the street we is it's very common. What people get, and one of my pals got wobbly teeth. Hmm. So, so the the hormones. One of the hormones that um, gets released in your body in during pregnancy in preparation for birth is relaxin. That's the hormone that gets all your ligaments nice and soft, so that your pelvis can separate and everything can be a bit more stretchy, which is a good thing. Uh, that can affect other ligaments, so that's why I often say to people, be careful a lot yoga, you, you could overstretch, your ligaments are really bendy, but you may not you know, need to stretch as far as you can. Teeth have got little ligaments, so there is a, a proportion of women that can get wobbly teeth that are associated with hormonal changes. I did not know that teeth had ligaments. Well, they're, they're sort of, yeah, they're, they're don't, not the same as your ligaments in your hands, but they're sort of, basically, um, there can be a hormonal um, cause for some wobbliness, but that's temporary, goes back to normal, and is not a dental problem. However... 
there are other causes of wobbly teeth that may be a result of things that do need intervention. So uh, when you're pregnant, you're, you're basically more prone to gum disease. So there are various factors that can affect dental hygiene when you're pregnant. Um, there's a change in blood flow. So a lot of women report bleeding glums. That, that can just be because you, you, everything's more vascular um, when you're pregnant. The blood flow, your blood volume increases there's just generally more blood flow going around, including to your gums, so they may be a bit more fragile. But various things that may happen during the pregnancy may also make your dental hygiene worse. For example, if you're vomiting a lot in the morning sickness, um, that can have issues with um, if it's, um, women who vomit a lot. I should be encouraged not to brush their teeth straight after because you can brush away the enamel or the stomach acids sort of soften the enamel. Um, people crave sugary foods, so they might eat more sugar. They're getting more plaque. That plaque can cause more inflammation in your gums. Um, some people retch when they're brushing their teeth, so they may be a bit reluctant to do so. So there's all these things that might might reduce the um, care you're taking with your teeth while you're pregnant. Um, and uh, it's really important to ideally have great hygiene before you get pregnant, have a dental checkup, make sure everything's okay. Because what we do know is that, that gum disease and, and gum infections can actually have effects on your baby. So it's, it's actually a really important part of your health while you're pregnant. Right. So not just doing the checkup after you've had your baby. Ideally, you do check up before you get pregnant because if you need work done, it's better to do that, have that all sorted. Make sure that your dental hygiene is generally good. Improve it where it's not. Yep. And make sure that you're if you've got a build up of plaque and then you get pregnant and then you can't brush it, brush your teeth because you're going to throw up every five minutes. Obviously, you need to then still need to brush your teeth, but you need to work out ways around it. If you're having problems, things that are stopping you looking after your teeth, it's better to sort of be proactive and on the front foot. It's a very important time for dental hygiene. Wow. Okay. All right. Next, uh, phantom kicks in the belly. Yeah. I actually experienced Same. this after I'd had mm. my baby. I how, still could how feel far? little kicks. Like, like for quite a few months afterwards. Mm, mm. So what, why? Mm, so I'm with my third, not so much with other two, but my third, I, yeah, definitely. So I had to look into this because um, obviously there's no baby kicking. <clears throat> Basically the thought, the thought around that is some women get it and some women don't. Um, the thought around that is probably just we just tuned in more to the sensations down there. And um, because we recognise that feeling after having a baby kicking in there, we recognise that feeling as a, a baby kicking in there. We're more likely to feel anything down there that feels anything like remotely like that. Um, there's a the, the way the nerves feed back to your brain from your uterus, they also feed back from other structures. They all travel along the same path. So it's possible that A, you're just more in tune to sensations down there, so you feel them, whereas before you had a baby, you may not have even noticed them. The second thing is, um, you know, your uterus takes a few months for the uterus to fully contract down, and so there's lots of movement still going, especially in the initial weeks. And bowel gas, things like that, I know different parts of your bowel, it feels different, but if if you had a big bit of gas moving through right where those nerves are, right near your uterus, it's possibly going to feel exactly like it. So I was just really farty and it felt like a baby. It was gas, Alice. <laughs> gas is normal. <laughs> we move litres through our bow every day. <laughs> okay. Big feet, big hands. How long are they sticking around for? The majority of changes in foot size um, in pregnancy are due to fluid retention. So um, our hormones, um, often later in pregnancy, we tend to retain fluid, puffy hands, puffy feet that's going to probably stay around for weeks to months, a couple of months usually at the most. But after after the baby comes, you usually sort of, all that fluid goes back um, into your system and you sort of pass it out. There are also, with that relaxant hormone I was talking about, there are ligaments in your feet. So there, there, there may be a flattening of your arch that happens while you're pregnant. Um, ligaments do tighten up later, but some women do find that they, they may be half a size bigger later or just diff, the different fit of certain shoes might change. Bladder control or bladder out of control? Uh, okay, this is a huge. <laughs> this is a huge um, 
I would encourage you to do, to do a really long segment on this. Basically, there are so many things that can happen that can affect your continence after ha- the continence, the ability to hold your urine after having a baby. Simply being pregnant is a risk factor for bladder problems, for, for incontinence after having a baby. So never mind the Caesar versus vaginal delivery, just being pregnant can make you more prone to incontinence. On top of that, so you have a um, you have stretching of the muscles and the ligaments um, as you have the baby or maybe a tear on episiotomy that can affect the pelvic floor muscles that are important for holding urine. That can obviously have an impact. Um, and then the third thing is um, the bladder itself, if it stretches during labour, say, for example, if your baby's head might be blocking your ability to pass urine while while it's going through the birth canal and that goes for a long period and say you've got IV fluids going so your bladder's nice and full, you can overstretch your bladder. Another setting that you might overstretch your bladder is if you have an epidural um, if you don't have a catheter in, that's why they catheterize you because if you don't have a catheter in, you can't feel the urge, your bladder overstretches. It can take a while for that bladder to learn how to fully empty again. So um, there's lots and lots and lots of reasons why you might have problems with your waterworks after having a baby. I encourage you to see your doctor early, see a good pelvic floor physiotherapist because because everyone's needs are different and um, it's one thing to say do your kegels or do your exercises but a, vast, a lot of women aren't doing them correctly and they think they're doing them but they're just doing little mini sit-ups or something like that. So I highly recommend early review if you're having problems with the waterworks. This one might be a big one too. How powerful are our hormones <laughs> in that first year and how long can we blame them for our emotional mess? <clears throat> sure. Certainly um, in those first days and weeks after the baby comes, there's a massive um, massive changes in hormones. You've got the dropping of the progesterone and estrogen that have been up high the whole time. Certainly in the first days to weeks afterwards, very powerful. Then you've got um, sort of hormonal changes that are associated with breastfeeding. So depending on how long you breastfeed for, so you've got the, the prolactin hormone that happens while you're breastfeeding that obviously has a change on, on our bodies generally, um, and oxytocin that's happening with your bonding with your baby. So those the, the oxytocin and prolactin, it all depends on what you're doing and how long you're breastfeeding for. The progesterone and estrogen, really that, that sort of, it, it, it does, um, the, the post-pregnancy drop happens quite quickly. Um, it stays quite low. While you're breastfeeding, it's, your estrogen is suppressed. So while you're not cycling, your estrogen is, is depressed. So there are adjustments. How long they last depends on what, what else is going on. Um, but the emotional stuff, it's not just about the hormones, is it? Listen, let's be honest. It's about stress. It's about sleep deprivation. It's about a shakedown in, you know, what, what you do with yourself, how you how you sort of feel like you're behaving in society, what what you get value from if you've gone from a full time job to a sort of stay at home mum, it can be like Groundhog Day. So that's going to have an emotional impact. Your relationship with your partner changes. So some of it's hormonal, yes. Some of it's social, psychosocial. Yeah, we can't just blame hormones for everything. No. Clearly. Now, Annie, can having a baby really affect your eyesight? Yes, it can. Yep. So that fluid we were talking about, um, you get fluid retention in your hands and feet and things like that. You also can get a fluid um, build up in your cornea. So that is going to change slightly change the curvature of your eye. That is so weird. Why does no one tell anyone this? That's so weird. So I couldn't wear contacts uh, while I was pregnant. Would that have had because to do with it, that? they didn't work as well, or they or they you just had dry eyes? Felt weird. Yeah. So you can you can also so if if you've got a bit of a fluid buildup, it can change the shape of your eyeball slightly, and that could might make your contacts not as comfortable. You may you might be getting dry eye, that which makes the contact dry out a bit more. Um, the the change in vision that you would get from from that fluid shift is is minor and temporary. So that you have the baby, that diuresis happens. That, that sorry, diuresis means all the fluid goes back where it needs to go, and, and you weigh it out. That 
that happens in the sort of first couple of days to weeks after, and then your eyesight should return to normal. I'd just like to point out there are some visual disturbances in pregnancy that are not normal or that need to be investigated. So if you have a severe visual change, like not just a little bit, oh, my prescription's a bit strange, if, if you're really having problems with eyesight, see your doctor because it could be a sign of preeclampsia or high blood pressure relating to your pregnancy and that may need further investigation. All right. Annie, is there anything that new parents can do to lessen the negative impact of sleep deprivation? Does sunshine really help or like iron supplements? Yeah, okay. So this is, a, this is obviously a big thing for a lot of people. There's a sort of you've got to separate fatigue from um, the tiredness because obviously fatigue could be because of sleep deprivation or iron deficiency and things like that. So certainly um, there is sleep deprivation when you're waking up to a baby that wakes frequently in the night. Um, if you're if you're experiencing ex- extreme tiredness, it's worth making sure that your iron and your thyroid levels are all fine. But assuming you've sort of ruled that out, if, you're, if your fatigue is sleep deprivation related, um, there are a few things you could try to do to lessen the impact. First thing I say to mums is reset your reset your expectations about what you're going to achieve every day. So if you sort of have a six-hour sleep with five interruptions, you're not going to be as productive the next day. So go easy on yourself in terms of housework and getting to appointments and baby gym and whatever it is you're doing with your week or um, just have different expectations for yourself. If you can sort of make sure that you get naps when you can. Everyone used to say nap to me, nap with your baby. I could never do it. But I did go to bed really early um, every night because I found that at least then that was an extra couple of hours I could sort of chock up overnight. Um, uh, making sure that um, that you uh, you mentioned sunshine. So the sunshine, how that works is there's a hormone in your brain called melatonin, which is the hormone that makes you sleepy. So sunshine switches that off. So much like when you go to another country and you're jet lagged, if you get out in the sun, that can help you combat jet lag. It can also help you feel more alert in the morning, even if you've had a bad night. You get out there into the park, the sun's going to help you feel more awake. But I think women just women and parents and fathers need to set reset the expectation of, of what how much sleep they're going to get because it's normal for babies to wake frequently into childhood. Mm. Um, and so just um, being realistic about what you can achieve the next day, I'd say, is probably the best advice. Yeah. While breastfeeding, Alice and I, we both had one overachieving boob <laughs> and one that kind of gave up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why did this happen? Okay. Another really interesting and, and quite complicated thing. Um, so breasts are not symmetrical anyway. So it's often hard to notice before you have a baby, but our breasts are not symmetrical. Um, the capacity of a, a breast to produce milk, milk is determined by a number of factors, both during the pregnancy and immediately postpartum and into your breastfeeding journey. So first of all, the the, the density of the glandular tissue in each breast may be different. Um, the, the, this glandular tissue is susceptible to hormones. So um, your ability to produce um, hormones, uh, breast milk is affected by that. So you might have a good breastfeeding experience with one baby and a terrible one with another, and that's you've got the same breast. So it's to do with that interplay of hormones with that breast tissue. So um, that that can affect your the the potential of your breast to produce milk, and then you've got those other sort of feedback loops. So your baby, the more your baby feeds, the more milk you 
produce. And so if you imagine you've got one breast that it's a comfortable feed, the fit and hold of the baby is comfortable, the milk flows well so the baby settles into a beautiful feed. And then you've got another side where the flow might not be just quite as good so your baby fusses and you are uncomfortable because your baby's fussing and then you sort of you might cut that short because the whole experience isn't as nice. So over time you end up with your self <laughs> favour one. Yeah, your favour mm. one. And so that breast just gets really good at feeding and the other breast um, sort of goes okay, I'm not needed. And and, and some women <laughs> I'm out of here. some women feed their whole baby from one breast. They, some people have had surgery and can't feed from other breasts. Other women have twins, so obviously one baby's feeding on one or the other. Other some people have a toddler feeding on one breast and a and an infant feeding on another. And it's fascinating. The milk is different in those two breasts because our bodies are amazing and what it can do. So basically, yes, your breasts may have a different potential to start out with, but then these hormonal factors come into play, and then the postpartum factors when the baby latches and how long they feed and how everyone feels when the baby's feeding because oxytocin and the letdown is all sort of linked in. They all going to it's like a feedback. Back loop, so it's quite it's quite a fascinating topic. Boobs are great. (laughs) They are. Wow, they're brilliant. Varicose veins. Do they go away on their own? What can people do about them? There's a two two main reasons why you might get varicose veins in pregnancy, and and this includes hemorrhoids. So the hemorrhoids are varicose veins in your bottom. So that's the same. We'll we'll roll that into this question. Um, (laughs) And you can get them in your vagina too. Yes, you can. Yeah. 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 Um, so the hormones, the, the hormones, the progesterone itself can cause a, a vasodilation, so an opening up of those vessels so they're wider and carry more blood. So that's a hormonal sort of um, component. But also the baby physically presses on your your, your um, vessels, um, your main vessel, vertica, leading up. So baby physically pressing on those vessels can cause congestion and make it harder for the blood to flow back towards the heart. So um, that that is why they happen. Um, so once you can imagine once the baby's born, the pressure's off, and, and once the hormones drop out, yes, they can improve. There are some women um, that that um, may have ongoing issues with their varicose veins. There are some women that are just genetically more likely to get them, um, but but they're, they, they're likely to improve in the sort of three months after the baby's born for those reasons. So, so the things you can do to prevent them getting worse while you're pregnant, uh, so supportive hosiery can help, elevating your legs, not crossing your legs, sort of um, exercise just to improve your circulation, not prolonged sitting, avoiding all these things can help re- reduce the um, development and discomfort associated with varicose veins. But if you had um, a varicose vein that was hard and the, or that the skin over it was thickened or your leg changed shape or you had a rash on your skin, you need to see your doctor because there obviously are other vascular things that might need treatment. Are spider veins completely different animals, the, 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 so that, to speak? That, that opening of the vessels that happens uh, hormone-related will, will cause a spider vein. They're just smaller. They're just little. They're just little but they're yeah. not dead veins, are they? Like no. they're still like they're still participating yeah, yeah, they're st- in your body, aren't they? Well, yeah. <laughs> they're not dead, no. Um, in the sense that you can press it and you, they go white and then they fill up with blood again. But yeah. it's just um, it's just like a little traffic jam. Ah. Do men? This is something I actually just heard from a colleague at work, but I've heard other people say this as well. Like they just know it's a known fact. Do men really experience a drop in testosterone in the first few weeks after their partner gives birth? Mm, this is a fascinating one. So. Um, there was a study done in 2011 which um, which looked – it was the first sort of big study about this that showed, demonstrated that there was a drop in testosterone in new fathers. And it was a longitudinal study. So they basically co- followed these men for a number of years, say five years, and they, they checked their testosterone when they were, you know, single or not, not fathers. And then again after the baby, and there was a, there was a significant drop in their testosterone in the sense that our testosterone – men's testosterone declines over time anyway with age. But – 
the, the men who were fathers, their testosterone declined more sharply um, than men that weren't fathers. So, you know, uh, the male might be experiencing sleep deprivation, stress about, you know, finances, stress about the relationship, stress about this new massive responsibility, and, and cortisol associated with stress can also drop your testosterone. So there's probably multiple things going on there. But it is true. Okay. It is really true. Interesting, it has been it? shown, yes. Yeah, super interesting. Um, how common is postnatal anxiety as opposed to postnatal depression? And is there anything people can do to lessen their chances of getting PNA and PNA? Yeah, sure. Really? Yeah. Sure, sure. So um, it's hard to a- accurately um, estimate the, the true prevalence of anxiety because it's probably very underreported. There are while we're getting more aware of it, there's still a lot of people that don't talk about it or don't recognise that that's what's going on because anxiety can look different in different people. Um, the stats um, are that about one in five women will have some form of um, mental health disturbance around the perinatal period, and that includes during the pregnancy. We're getting we're talking more and more about anxiety and depression during the pregnancy because that's a massive risk factor as well for afterwards. So it's, it's not just about postnatal. So I, I try to call it perinatal. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, about one in five women will have some sort of um, disruption in their mental well-being. Um, depression and anxiety can happen together or they can happen separately. Um, there's emerging research that does suggest that anxiety may be just as disruptive and possibly more common than depression. So it is a big issue. Um, it, it's um, Fortunately, people are talking more about it now and awareness is better. They don't test for it, though, as much as they do for depression. Like I remember when I had my visit from the... Mid- the um, maternal health, health nurse who yeah. comes to your house. Mm. Everyone's got to do this post-natal big survey depression. about postnatal mm. depression, yeah. but there's not, absolutely nothing about anxiety. Some of the questions in there do relate to anxiety, and, and certainly um, uh, you would still pick up some anxious traits in a, in a, in a patient, but if you look, especially if you break down and look at the individual questions. But um, so. It, it is it is screened for as part of that. It, it, we could possibly improve those those women that specifically may score really well on the depression thing, may get a normal score on the postnatal, but they, if you look at if you break it down and look at certain questions, you can sort of um, modify that. But I, I, I agree, it's, it, it, it's possibly not as recognised traditionally as the depression side of, of the presentation. Um, you talked about how to, how do you prevent it. I guess um, the, the, there are women that are at increased risk, so knowing knowing if you're at increased risk, risk is, is important. Um, some of the risk factors for developing postnatal, um, perinatal anxiety and depression are um, a history of depression or anxiety already, or either in you or in your family. Um, if you stressful life events, so if you're having a baby and your parent dies, that's often a massive, um, massive life stress. So if you're if you know that's happening, you're, you are at higher risk. We need to be more vigilant of, of if you start to feel these things. Um, a lower level of social support this is sort of a bit of a no-brainer. Um, perfectionist personality. So women that are really type A, really like to control everything. Obviously, you have a baby and you, you don't... We don't control our children. <laughs> they are little humans and we can't control them. So that's a, that's a huge adjustment for a lot of women who, who have controlled everything. And, and especially now where most, a lot of women are in the workforce or, or have, you know, control over everything that's going on at home. And, and suddenly there's a shakedown and they can't keep, they, they maybe leave the workforce for a period of time or they, they can't keep on top of the home homemaking that they pride themselves on. There's a massive, massive change in, in things and in control is a massive thing that's lost. So those women are at increased risk and low socioeconomic um, status. Also pregnancy and um, delivery complications. So if you've had a a birth outcome or a birth experience that wasn't in line with your expectation, that's a risk factor. 
So um, in terms of prevention, I think knowing about it, talking about it, um, understanding that um, it's normal to feel some anxiety. That's, that's a protective thing. If we didn't worry about our children, we might not look after them as well. But recognising when that worry is becoming pathological, when that worry is stopping you enjoying your baby, stopping you um, leaving the house, stopping you um, relating to your partner, that they're all... They're all a red flag. So talking early to your GP, the early early intervention is really important. The the more support we can we can put around these women, the the, the better the outcomes for mother and baby and family. So um, surrounding yourself with support. If you if you don't have family, I often say to my patients early on when they when they're from another country or their parents are elsewhere or not with us anymore. Get someone early, if it be a paid help or a neighbor, someone early that can get to know your baby and you can be there. And then when you're comfortable, you might duck to the shops and leave your baby with someone. And, and then down the track, you might go to a meal with your husband or you might you might grab a movie. But getting someone in early so that you never feel like you're the only one that mm-hmm. can do the job can be really helpful. Thank you so much for your time, Marshall. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Whoa. Whoa. That was so much information. That was so interesting. Seriously. That was Dr. Annie Marshall from Roselle Total Health, very patiently wading through a barrage of questions and busting some myths. Thanks for tuning in to our very first episode. Next on Body Shock, we'll be looking closely at a topic that weighs heavily on the minds of all new parents. Sleep. We'll be chatting to sleep psychologist Dr. Leora Kempler about what you can do about your sleep not your babies. Catch you then.